So what are we doing? <laughs> Welcome. This is our 75th episode. Wow. Did you ever think that we'd be here today? 75 wonderful episodes together. What are we going to get into today? <laughs> I know this. Hold on. It rhymes with Schmasylvania. Oh. <laughs> test, test. Are we hot? I mean, one of us is because they just got contacts. Boom. This isn't the glow up. Gorgeous game. <laughs> Games glow hour. I already hate this podcast. Gorgeous games glow up. Dang. No. <laughs> if uh, none of you have seen Gabe, all three of you that listen to this podcast. Count your blessings. Then consider yourself the fortunate ones. <laughs> then just know that he got a lot hotter because Ooh. he took his glasses off. No. It's true. I'm also not wearing a hat today, so I did my hair. Because I, I was getting dinner with my folks. Family. Man, yeah. you did that hair. I know. You really did. <laughs> it's way too long. I need to get it cut. It's all over the place. I feel like a mess, but I don't feel very hot. But thank you guys for giving me that ego boost right before our yeah. podcast. Now I'm ready to go. Uh, we have a guest today. Who's the third voice? Why don't you tell us, Steve? Well, I'd like to tell you. Friend it's of a, the show? a really good friend of mine, one of the best. His name is Trevor Gerard, and he's here with us today. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to time it. Trevor is a self-proclaimed artist. That's right. That was the first thing I did when I came out of the womb. I just proclaimed to the world, I'm an artist. Hear me roar. Who makes really good art in the world drawings i don't know how to describe you i don't either because i know him as my friend mm -hmm. we've known each other we went to Too high school long, together probably. yeah yeah i think we've known each other since freshman or sophomore year of high yeah. school and then became better friends in junior year when we were kind of like trapped in prison that's true in the same math class together metaphorical prison of course well, it felt literal. that's true <laughs> And then uh, Trevor went on to do great things wow. in the world. Too kind, man. And is continuing to do great things. Thank you. That's humbling. Oh, I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about Beholder uh, um, at all or what it is? I do a bunch of creative stuff. It's hard for me to even keep track sometimes. Um, I don't know. What do I say? If anyone has ever heard of or worn Brixton, Mm -hmm. It's I, likely that you have worn one of Trevor's designs. Okay, I'll try to just do a quick rundown. Um, my dad's an artist, so I grew up around art. I think art was kind of a sport in my family. Mm. Like, we didn't watch football or basketball. It was all about going outside, making a painting, or climbing rocks. I did a lot of rock climbing growing up. And yeah, I just grew up in surfing, skating world. Wanted to be in that world. Got into that world. Worked at... A bunch of different companies, spent a good amount of time at Brixton doing a lot of graphics and work for them. And now I'm freelance, but I do some really long-term projects. Like one of them is with a brand called Caton, Canvas by Caton. We do t-shirts and trunks and all kinds of stuff. And then my passion project that I do on the side is called Beholder. And it's kind of my little gift shop. If a person ever had a gift shop, that's kind of how I look at Beholder. It's I just make stuff that's in my brain and left over from the jobs that those projects wouldn't fit into. So yeah, I just try to basically make as much stuff as I can at all times and keep track of it all. That's awesome. That was the best I could do. That was awesome. Okay. I remember in that math class, you creating some of your designs. Early your, stuff. Yeah. I would call them like characters yeah, because yeah. they were really cool characters that no one could ever think of. Trevor has always been, in my opinion, one of the most, if not the most creative person I've ever oh, met. Thanks, man. And it's, I've often been jealous of him in my life. Oh. Up until... Uh, up until now. Up until I got to <laughs> know him better. <laughs> I, I think... 
you bring up an interesting point, creating characters in high school. Mm-hmm. As much as I love drawing and doing art and being an artist, I think most of my work centers around narratives. Mm. So everything I make usually has a story behind yeah. it or a point or a purpose. It rarely just is like wow. flames on a paradise, you know, like usually. And that's why I think I'm really drawn to that's really interesting. All types of medium, you know, movies, sure. comics, sure, whatever. Like I'm always interested in kind of the narrative and the story and why the characters do the things they do and yeah. why we do the things we do. I've always heard you talk about story mm-hmm. because you're always talking about what's the story behind the thing. I've never heard you say it in that way before mm-hmm. where you're essentially talking about all your designing, all of your art comes with like a story. And that's true because I remember you would, as you were creating the character, you were just drawing a character on a page. You would come up with like a narrative behind it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember you like telling me all this stuff right. when we were like 17. And I kind of needed to. Yeah. I couldn't. At that point, I hadn't learned about just putting stuff out into the world right. and letting it kind of find its own audience. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, I think I honestly, in my head, when I kind of refer to myself, I call myself a storyteller. Mm. So that's a lot of times how I think about anything creative. Yeah. It's all a story. So as you three people that listen to this podcast can imagine, Trevor's going to bring a very unique perspective to this episode <laughs> in, a, in a good way, in the, be, in the best possible Hopefully. way, uh, because we're talking about something that is beloved by all three of us today. Ooh. Gabe, what are we talking about? Today, we're talking about Castlevania. Netflix's Castlevania. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, Netflix's animated series that just finished like a month ago. Like a month ago, I think it came out. Season four. Yeah. Based off of the classic, critically acclaimed action-adventure video game series from Konami that I think first... Premiered on NES. In 86, right? Nintendo Entertainment System, the original. I remember playing it on NES. Too hard. Very difficult. Too, too hard. I remember playing it and then ejecting the cartridge from NES. I was like, F that game. Give me Mario 3. Yeah. Yeah. That was in a golden age of video games where games were made difficult. Yeah. Like they were made to be hard. Every yes. game was hard. <laughs> Interesting. I put in Ninja Gaiden recently. Oh. Oh my gosh. Impossible. It's so hard. It's interesting that they were literally trying to turn people away with the difficulty level at that point <laughs> in gaming. Yeah, now man. it's all about like pay to play and open the funnel as wide as you can. But at that point, it's about making it easier. Too. It's actually gone so far now that we're doubling back and you've got like the Souls games, the Dark Souls games yeah. that are all now punishingly hard. And mm-hmm. that's its own addictive thing. Yeah, it's interesting. But even that is a rarity. Like yeah. you said, I think it's funny watching video games now. And I remember the specific. Specifically, when The Last of Us 2 came out, there's a type of yeah, setting yeah. you can turn on called journalist mode or something okay. like that in the game where it's literally like you're a god. You're just walking sure. around instantly. Which is exactly how I would want to play the game. <laughs> well, that's how you That's how you talked about when you got to the late game in Hades. You yeah. had so many bonuses and perks and all these things yeah, yeah. where you were basically a god. <laughs> but you worked up to it. Yeah, he had to earn it. You essentially become impenetrable. Nice. Steven's always wanted to be impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> but one of my favorite things about this series, apart from how good it actually is, which we'll talk about soon, was before season one came out, the first teaser trailer was an old tube TV mm. with the original Nintendo system. Mm-hmm. And it essentially was the video game playing on the TV with static and it had that kind of 80s retro RGB blowout look. Yeah, CRT. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And it was so cool. And that's how they announced that they were doing this series. 
was by really tapping into the nostalgia factor that I think, I think it kind of came after Stranger Things season one Mm -hmm. to kind of hit that audience. Mm -hmm. And then this series came out and then Trevor and I, I remember we were talking about season one when it came out. I didn't follow through for the last three years or however long it's taken for them to make three more seasons Mm -hmm. because the first season was four episodes. Yep. It was a teaser. Yeah. It was very, very short. Mm -hmm. And then season two dropped and I didn't watch it. Trevor kept watching it and then three and then he watched it and he kept saying how good it was. And then season four just dropped that Gabe said a month ago. And so I finally sat down and watched the whole thing and I regretted every ounce of me saying uh, that show, you know, didn't do it for me. And and I should have kept watching because it ended up being one of my favorite animated things I've ever seen, probably. It's definitely some kind of a masterpiece. Yeah. I don't know on what level totally, whether it's fandom or maybe the animation or I don't know exactly what metric or scale, but on some level, I think we'll look back and go, that's a cult classic. That's yeah. That marks a point in, in history. Yeah. I've never seen American anime look this good yeah. and seem this immediate or engaging. Right. I did not work my way through the Avatar series. I know a lot of people talk about that as American uh, anime that's good, but yeah. I saw a little bit. Well, that was still, in terms of anime, like writing it versus creating the art. I think it was written by or helmed by American studios, yeah. but it was Korean studios, Studio Mir, that drew it. Okay. So isn't that similar here with Castlevania? No, everything from Castlevania was- American? Built out of, yeah. What? No kidding. American, it was animated here. American Steel. Man, on American soil. American Steel. There yeah. you go. I, I was going to do a quick rundown on the history of the development of the yeah, show. Yeah. yeah. Because there's a bit of a story to talk about. We're going to talk about the history of the development of the show. <laughs> Take it away, Gabe. Well, like Trevor said, it is kind of a marvel for an American animation production to not only be this good, but to hit this level of success. Because I think this is one of Netflix's most popular really? productions, particularly on the animated side, because they've had a lot of hit and miss with their anime. Hmm. Yes. This show originally began in 2007 when Frederator Studios acquired the rights to produce an animated film an adaptation of Castlevania 3, Dracula's Curse, intended as one of those direct-to-video productions. All that OVA culture, if you want to call it that. They were drawing from all that from the get-go when they were developing this show, or as it was originally going to be a movie. So Frederator Studios, in 2007, when they were going to make this direct-to-video animated film, they brought Warren Ellis on board to write it. He's done a lot of work for pop culture, including, and he hadn't done it at the time, but he's done films like Red 1 and Red 2 since then. He's done a lot of work for Marvel in comics and animated shows, including the extremist story arc, which became Iron Man 3. So he was credited as a writer on that. Interesting. Gabe, what does OVA stand for? I'm forgetting right now in the moment because the pressure's on. I think it's just original video animation. I think it's like that whack. Yeah. Yeah. There's a rich history in Japan of the OVA culture. What are some examples of OVAs? Can you know? I think Berserk. Berserk is an OVA. Robotech. Robotech. Battle of the Planets, which is kind of like Robotech. Akira, I don't know if it's not a series though. But yeah, it's a movie. But I think it might be considered an OVA. It's It's a style too. It's always like adult to some level. There's usually a little nudity and yeah. Yeah. It's not exactly for children. No. But they did play on networks. Yeah. I remember people talking about them watching Robotech growing up. So there's an interesting thing in Japan where they never made the delineation between cartoons being for kids and adults. Whoa. So like here, 
at some point we decided that cartoons were going to be for kids, right? Yeah. In in Japan they didn't do that. God, that sucks. So like, yeah. I've been, you know, I've <laughs> I've been to Tokyo and you'll be sitting on the train and there'll be an 80-year-old man reading a manga. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's reading like some horror manga or whatever and and it's nerdy. It is nerdy. Don't get it wrong, like otaku, those are like nerds essentially. Like adult nerds. Yeah, I do think there's like some shame possibly included in that. But nevertheless, like it was never said publicly that cartoons are for kids. Jeez. Where here they were. Yeah. At some point. And I only know the way I grew up, which is hide it and don't let anyone know that you're into it. Gosh, I still feel that way. Well, the interesting thing now is it's changing so much because... So like two years ago, my niece, who's now 11, wanted to know about anime because all her popular friends at school are into anime. Yeah. She was Johnny come lately to the anime scene and Uh, asked Uncle Trev, who's a huge nerd, luckily, (laughs) about what's up. And, you know, I turned her on to the Hayao Miyazaki movies and all that stuff. So kids right now are having this kind of resurgence with anime. All kinds of nerd culture. It's becoming cool. Totally. And has been for a little while. Yeah. I mean, superhero comics are the mm-hmm. premier blockbuster of our time. Right. Right. They're adaptation to film anyway. But in high school, yeah. Akira was the nerdiest shit you could be into. And it's funny because now you have Supreme, yeah. New York skate brand that like Kate Moss is famous for wearing a Supreme shirt. And <laughs> they did a collab with Akira. Oh. And it's just so fascinating. Yeah. And that's the thing about cool, right? Cool yeah. is just elusive. It comes and goes. You yeah. never know where it's going to land. It also helps when a mega star like that reps your brand in a photo or something. And then all of a sudden that thing that our small group has always thought was cool just, you know, explodes into pop culture. I think that's the Trojan horse of every nerdy creative. You're like, what star power can I get on this project to trick people into watching it? They need like Kanye to wear it or something. Totally. Yeah, (laughs) totally. It's crazy. Sorry, Gabe. We went on a wave tangent there for a second. That's a very important history because all of those things, OVAs, and stuff overseas. There's a lot of history there. But yeah, they they brought on Warren Ellis to pen this original script. And he was working directly with Koji Igarashi, who was a producer on the Castlevania series for 20, 30 years. The game? Yeah, the games with Konami. And so he's a character, if you've ever heard of him. He like wears a cowboy hat and he drinks red wine and he's he's kind of a vampire. (laughs) If you've ever seen footage What's of What's his him. name? Koji. I have a hard time saying it. Koji, Koji Igarashi. Igarashi, yeah. A lot of these Japanese auteur video game creators are like that. Personalities. Like, like yeah. Hideo Kojima's also very totally. eccentric. And then so is Sakurai. Yeah. Also very eccentric. Did Smash? Yeah. I think they're probably rock stars in their homeland. Respect. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, it's, it's been bleeding over too into Western culture oh, for 20, 30 years. Totally. I mean, Hideo Kojima now... Because Konami exiled him Mm -hmm. years ago. Why? Difference of creative vision, right? Yeah. I mean, is the story. He wanted to make his games and Konami wanted to move away from... Making good quality games? Yeah, like AAA gaming. This is the story. I think they wanted to move into mobile gaming and casino stuff. So Kojima made Death Stranding, which I didn't play it, but I know all the memes. It's it's nuanced. You (laughs) must love detail to love that game, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he rose to fame through other game series like Metal Gear Solid. But Death Stranding, I think, is what cemented his identity in the Western audience, or at least for the casual fan, because... 
most people have probably heard of Metal Gear is how people know him, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. That was a bit of a tangent. That was Hideo Kojima. Okay. Just as an example of these Japanese auteurs that are sort yeah, yeah, yeah. of Eastern culture blending into Western culture. Anyway, back to history of Castlevania, the show slash movie. <laughs> <laughs> So they had Warren Ellis on board to write this thing, and it was always from the start supposed to be this adult-themed show where it's gritty and it's dark and it's gory. You know, just like all that homage to the OVAs, the classic era of Japanese anime. But there was a lot of production problems, and one of those things being Warren Ellis wanted to write a larger story because he felt like he couldn't tell a good story in a single 80 90 minute film so a lot of things played into this production hell that started to occur and a year later the thing completely stalled out hmm. and went dark for a few years until circa 2012 a producer adi shankar <laughs> was approached you might you might know who that is <laughs> my boy <laughs> the guy <laughs> another eccentric figure yeah yeah and super eccentric so much but the timing is interesting on this because he had just finished producing Dread, which was the Carl Urban Which I, I dug. I loved it too. Anyway, Adi Shankar was approached to do a live action adaptation of a Castlevania script. I think it was the Ellis script. And the style of like Underworld is what they used Ooh. as a reference because that wasn't uh, high cinema. Mm. But it was a blockbuster of the 2000s. That's Kate Beckinsale, right? Yeah, that's her franchise. Yeah. He turned it down initially because he thought it would be both... Stupid? Yeah, well... <laughs> stupid as a relative concept but he said it would be disrespecting yeah like yeah, the source right. material Hell yeah he wouldn't be able to do it justice you know he wears a power glove in his interview you know like yeah he's a nerd he gets it so he moved away from that and the project went dark for a few more years until sam Dietz, a director at powerhouse animation studios which is another american animation studio pitched this project to netflix which was reviving this project that had been you know, almost lost to time. The original Warren Ellis script, which was now more than a single film, it was like a three-part trilogy. Mm. And Netflix instantly ate it up. They're like, this is great. I don't know how much of that was them thinking this would be a great investment or if it was just part of them throwing their net out as Netflix does, seeing how many fish they can catch because mm -hmm. they green light so much and then cancel almost just as much. Right, they don't sign on for many seasons. Right. Yeah. I know a little bit about Stranger Things. I have a friend that works on Stranger Things and they still only get greenlit for one, maybe two seasons at a time. And that is Netflix's biggest property, which is kind of interesting. Did you work on Stranger Things? <laughs> <laughs> I did, Stephen. Nice. <laughs> cool. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I was not going to drop that. I know. <laughs> um, yes. I worked on some props for the show. My friend does the wardrobing, Amy Paris. Shout out, Amy. You're the best. Yeah, it was great. It was a super fun bucket list item. Steven's smiling at me. I don't know what to say, but... Uh, you worked on season three and, and four. four so. It's coming out, yeah. Whenever that decides to drop. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any insider knowledge. I'm oh, Yeah, I'm not asking. Anyway. That's awesome, Trevor. <laughs> yeah, Thank we're you, big, Steven. big fans of Stranger Things. Great here. show. Anyway, just to wrap up this segment of the history of the show of the game. One day we'll get there. Sorry. Yeah, no, no it's no. fine. All this is gold. That's what we do here at the Pulp Copcast. The Cult Popcast. Uh, so everyone was on board with this. Powerhouse Animation Studios has done a lot of great work over the 20 years that they've been a company. They've worked with Marvel and DC on plenty of shorts. Oh, really? They've worked with Riot Games on some League of Legends content. And they've worked with Netflix. They did Blood of Zeus, which also just recently came out. That looked good. Yeah, very I similar. I thought about watching it because it actually looked really good. And I think it just dropped this year. Yeah, it's very recent. Yeah. And they've done a few shows like that, including a Master of the Universe 
Revelation, which is like a follow-up to He-Man. Oh, that's uh, Kevin produced, Yeah, it's produced, produced by, Kevin, by Smith. Kevin Smith. It's coming out, I think, at the end of this year. Yeah. It also is supposed to be very good. Interesting. So they've been very busy, and they brought back the studio that initially started this project, Frederator Studios, and they've worked on a bunch of classic stuff over the last they 20 years. Futurama, right? I didn't see Futurama on there. I did see Fairly Odd Parents. That's that, Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. And Adventure Time. Oh, okay. I just remember the bumper. Frederator! Yeah. Actually, now I remember that too. Yeah. This train is almost in the station. (laughs) So the studios got together. They brought Warren Ellis back to work on the script and make that first season of the show, which was basically him reusing his first script, which was supposed to be the first part in his trilogy of getting to know these characters. So that first season of Castlevania on Netflix is basically his original film, his Mm. 80 or 90 minute film cut Mm. up into pieces. Mm. And then they brought Adi Shankar back to help produce it. And he's, I think, going to be helping with the show moving forward because the show has basically run its course. There's no more in this series of stories. The four seasons of Castlevania that are out now are a complete work. But they're going, I think Netflix has already greenlit a spinoff meant to be in the universe. Probably not with these characters, I think they said. But I know Warren Ellis will probably not be involved moving forward because he got Me Too'd pretty hard a year ago, I think. Uh. And so I think he might just be completely finished. He gone. Yeah, a whole bunch of women came forward with allegations of sexual coercion or something like that. So they are planning on continuing in some fashion with the series. Yeah. Just not with these three titular characters. Yeah. They'll probably have a new Belmont and Mm -hmm. they'll probably reuse... Alucard. Yeah. I'm sure there will be elements of the show that are in it, but it'll not be in the same time and story directly. So that's, I mean, that's the theme in the games is Alucard's immortal. Yeah. And Dracula comes back every hundred years and the Belmont lineage just keeps going on. So then they just need a new Sypha character, which she, what is her order called? I always kind of forget. The speakers. The speakers. There's different versions of that in the games too. Yeah. There's a couple other families in the game. Um, I can't think of their names, but at one point the Belmonts fall off and the different house of family takes over the role of vampire slayers. In the games? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I know also Alucard was like the main character in Symphony of the Night. Yep. That's what I'm hoping for. Spoiler Symphony alert. of the Night, you said, was considered one of the best games ever. Yeah. It's probably the most famous Castlevania game. Yeah. And then I probably would put it in a sort of classic category in terms of like, you know, your Mario 64 and your... You equated uh, it to, to sort of... Um, Final Fantasy VII almost, right? Yeah, not as obviously not nearly as big in scope. And it was also kind of a flop, I think, when it came out Mm. because it was 2D and kind of this fresh new 3D world. Mm. But over time, it has become like this shimmering beacon of the Metroidvania kind of style of Mm. games that are so popular now. Yeah. And not just in gameplay, but also in art. Ayami Kojima... I don't think there's any relation to Hideo Kojima, but Ayami Kojima's art for Symphony of the Night is basically the direct inspiration for the show and all of its art style and that gothic horror kind is of... Is that... Because I have actually seen nothing from that game. Mm-hmm. Is it gameplay and then cut to cinematic that has some of that art in it or is it... Mm-mm. Is art like the it's, art style from... I don't know if there are cinematics. There might be in the very beginning, but even in the intro of the gameplay... You're watching like side scrolling story play out. I'm not going to spoil it, but you're watching like Castlevania characters on a stage. Like You said Alucard is the main character of that game, right? Yeah. You play as Alucard in that game. He's a fan favorite. He's so sick. He can turn into a wolf, a bat, vapor. He has a sword familiar. Yeah. It 
he's just this yeah he's such a sick character don't get me started on alucard i could just go on alucard <laughs> gush yeah i kind of have like a crush on him to be honest he's a beautiful man yeah, yeah. yeah. and his voice was incredible <laughs> who who's, i mean yeah is the yeah, actor do you known have the specs for like the cast and everything yes. alucard was voice acted by james callis who was in battlestar galactica and other things. <laughs> <laughs> I was like waiting for the laugh to start. <laughs> Who was in... Uh... <laughs> Probably a more familiar household name would be Trevor Belmont's voice actor, Richard Armitage. Armitage, Who was in the Hobbit series as the main dwarf. He was Trevor Belmont? Thorin. Thorin. Thorin Oakenshield. Uh, Saifa Belnades was played by Alejandra Reynoso, who's very young. She's really? my age. Actually, she's two days younger than me. And then definitely need to throw some credit to the other actors, actresses, even though they don't have as high the billing. Hector was played by Theo James. Isaac, my favorite character, was done by... You gotta say his name. (laughs) Adetto Combo. Adetto Combo McCormick. And then Dracula was Graham McTavish. And there's a lot of incredible voice talent in this show. I would also throw in Carmilla, played by Jamie Murray. Then there is Lenore, who I really like. Steven was a big Lenore fan. Big Lenore fan. Interesting. Are you kidding? No. Okay. <laughs> Jessica Brown Finley. <laughs> Jessica Brown Finley. And then Saint Germain. Saint Germain. Saint Germain. Saint Germain. As Bill Nye. Bill Nye. It's subtle. It's like Bill Nye. Not like the science guy, though. No. Okay. The second syllable is like an extra breath. It's yeah. like Bill Nye. Nye. Oh, and then Malcolm McDowell was Varney. Oh, yeah, and death, right? Wow. Jason Isaacs was the judge. I was going to say, that was like probably the craziest thing for me because Jason Isaacs has been in so much cool stuff. And that was kind of a bit part in season three. Yeah. Well, they had a kind of a small budget, right? Did they? I think it grew with the seasons. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was pretty small, all things considered. So to do what they did in both you know, animation and voice talent and just direction quality for a more modest budget was incredible. Yeah, because I had heard they didn't even have money to hire San Germain's lover. That's why she's just oh. a silhouette and not like uh, a, I waited for you or a whatever. A fully voice acted yeah. character. They just skipped it, which it worked. Yeah, they made it work. A lot of times constraints like that, you can work within them and it almost kind of can make things. Yeah. You want to talk about the story? Yeah, I'm going to try to tell the story as fast as possible. By season? Yep. Season one, four episodes. You follow a few characters. Trevor Belmont, who comes from a long history of monster hunters, but they specifically hunt vampires. He's kind of a rugged ruffian. (laughs) (laughs) A handsome rogue. (laughs) An alcoholic. A rambling rapscallion. He teams up with two other protagonists in season one. Saifa, who eventually becomes his sort of lover. Who's a magician speaker. She does magic. And then the third character protagonist is Alucard, who we were just talking about. He's the son of Dracula, and he has all these really cool qualities to him. Just makes him very badass. And then Dracula is a huge, uh, I guess he's a protagonist. Antagonist? He's a sympathetic antagonist. He's a antagonist. (laughs) Anti-hero. In the show, and he's very awesome. He essentially wipes out a town, and then Alucard, Saifa, and... And Trevor Belmont team up to hunt him down. 
So season two picks up, it's eight episodes, so it's twice as long as season one. The whole season is about that trio essentially tracking down Dracula and his castle to kill him and take down all of his plans and... What are his plans? His plans are to kill all of humanity (laughs) (laughs) and take the world for himself because humans killed his wife, who was also human. Sort of a weird irony there. Anyway, they introduced two other really interesting characters in this season called Forge Masters. And Forge Master has to be a human. And what they do is they actually take demons from hell and put them into people that have died or creatures that have died. And then they become sort of these entities called night creatures that take all different kinds of shapes and sizes and they obey the Forge Masters. But the two Forge Masters who are part of Dracula's court, they're named Hector and Isaac, and they are very important characters. Eventually, the trio catch up with Dracula and his castle that moves and Alucard who's Dracula's son again kills his dad in his old childhood bedroom and it's very intensely sad moment for Alucard heavy yeah and because the castle moves through space it teleports from different places on planet earth it's like Kroll if you ever saw Kroll yeah I haven't (laughs) check it out okay but it gets put on top of the old Belmont home where there's like a bunch of archive knowledge and weapons and stuff in a large built-out catacomb. And the castle sort of rests on top of that point, and then Sypha melts all the gears that can move the castle. So the castle is now stuck on top of the Belmont Hold. And Dracula's dead. And season three starts, and Sypha and Trevor and Alucard part ways. Alucard and Trevor have this back-and-forth fun dialogue all the time. But so Sypha and Trevor find themselves in some city all this stuff starts playing out and this alien has taken over this church, mm-hmm. the priory that is at the church. And their ultimate plan is that the alien is a night creature who I think was one of Isaac's old night creatures. And the alien is convinced the members of this church to try to resurrect Dracula it gets extremely awesome. They meet the other character, St. Germain, here in this town. And then Isaac's off sort of on a revenge kick because Dracula pushed him through a mirror into the desert in season two. And he's off on a revenge kick to get revenge for Dracula for being betrayed by Hector. He doesn't really have much of an arc, actually, in season three. And then Hector, who essentially betrayed, along with Carmilla, who's the queen of this province, and her and her sisters preside over this new castle in a different location called Styria. It's her and three other female vampires. Hector becomes imprisoned by them. He meets a female vampire named Lenore, <laughs> who, you know, have this back and forth. She seduces him. And then, Hot and cold. And then he... <laughs> sweet and sour that was a human vampire pun actually because she's oh, cold blood yeah true uh-huh. that's true and then he gets seduced by her and that kind of begins season four. Oh, alucard hangs out with a couple japanese twins youth, youth. 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 twins right who try to yeah. get him in bed strangely and, sexual season extremely like awkwardly sexual yeah true it was great And then season four introduces a bunch of kind of new elements. The biggest idea that they introduced in season four was death being a character like the Grim Reaper. Anyway, Sypha and Trevor realize that there is some sort of insane plot through all these different people to try to resurrect Dracula. And so they're trying to stop that the whole time. There's a a common theme. Yeah. 
Yeah. Similar to how the alien church was trying to resurrect Dracula in season three. Wow. They track everything down to Targoviste, which was a town that Dracula destroyed in season one. And there's this seemingly terrible vampire named Varney of London. Varney of London. He's like the Jack Sparrow of vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and then Alucard gets called to help this nearby town. These people are about to be annihilated by some night creatures. So Isaac makes it to Hector and the four vampires place. And he essentially battles Carmilla, who's the most insane vampire there. Lenore gets put in prison for a little bit. Isaac gets to Hector. They put aside their differences and Hector helps Isaac get to Carmilla. Isaac gets to Carmilla and destroys her using this really cool angel character. And an army of night creatures. Night creature. That's kind of the end of their story. It was a good resolution. And then Varney jumps through a mirror, which is, again, a teleportation device. He ends up in Dracula's court, where St. Germain, who had traveled through a portal from season three, shows up. And he's trying to resurrect Dracula in the exact spot where Dracula was killed, which was, again, Alucard's childhood bedroom. And Trevor and Cyphus show up. They also jump through the mirror. They're now reunited with Alucard, which is like the best scene of the whole so season four. Sick. The whole castle at this point, Dracula's castle, which is now Alucard's castle is being taken over by a bunch of night creatures and they just like wipe them out. It's so freaking rad through every room, every corridor. And then they get to the top where St. Germain has been conned into resurrecting Dracula. Varney's right by his side. Varney of London, again, the Jack Sparrow of vampires. It turns out he reveals himself to essentially be a master manipulator and he is death he is the creature known as death or the grim reaper and i think he's from hell he considers himself from hell like a hell spawn hell creature but he's ancient and he's been posing as varney for a long time and then trevor's like all right i'll take care of it so (laughs) all right guys don't worry i'll kill death (laughs) what is that possible he's like everyone get away i'm gonna take care of death so he does he wipes out death with the grand cross, his move from the game. See, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is so sick. Was really sick. And Saint Germain does something that's a little shady, and we don't know what he does. And it cuts to two weeks later, and Alucard is now rebuilding. Essentially, he took the people from the nearby town and is building a new town around the castle of Dracula and the hold of the Belmont House, because Trevor essentially, at this point, was thought to be dead. He wants to name the whole town Trevor. And Sife is there now pregnant with Trevor's child, who eventually will become Simon Belmont, which is a famous character from the Castlevania games. And then Trevor rolls up, not dead, on a horse. And he believes himself to be saved through St. Germain's last kind of dying gesture of sending him through a portal at the last second. And uh, everything's really happy. Oh, and then it cuts back to Hector and Lenore, and Lenore dies, and that was sad for me. Uh... <laughs> Um, Good job. Nice, Steven. It's also revealed that Dracula and his wife were in fact resurrected and are choosing to be with each other and travel the world and leave Alucard alone. (laughs) I think that's the whole recap. You got all the beats. There's a couple other characters that I didn't mention that are really cool in there, but... The whole show, I should say, is a lot of talking. It's very philosophical. 
It's a lot of sort of existential philosophical questions being posed. Most of the show is that, and that's what makes it so good, in my opinion. And then it's got all the other stuff thrown into it, and that's the device that catapults the show forward. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what the heart of the show is really breaking down the human condition and asking sort of the big questions about how do we, being broken people because of our storied and difficult past, move forward in love. That's what the show's about, and it's really kind of centered around love and love trying to triumph but often not being able to because of the complexities of human nature anyway wow love in a nightmarish hellish world yeah where there's monsters that will literally i think episode one and season one the first scene is like a demon eating a baby like a human baby so that's pretty cool right out the gate Yeah, it's set in Victorian Gothic background. But you brought up a really good point in passing when we were talking about this a little before, that this show has combined a lot of lore and kind of blended it together into its own new kind of world. It genre hops like a mofo. The fact that it was pulling out so much of world history was Mm -hmm. one of the most fascinating things for me. Because it was set late 15th century Wallachia, which became Romania. So you have so much of the story tethered in reality in Eastern European history. Like all the conversations, for instance, that Isaac had in his storylines about pulling things like Jesus Christ out of the woodwork and Mm -hmm. using him in their philosophical debates, I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's familiar with these stories and they're using them in this fresh context. Yeah, I would say the only other sort of comic book or I guess just kind of deeper nerd stories I've ever read that are like this is Sandman. The Sandman is honestly... Mm very similar to how this show has played out. It's a dark fantasy. There's bright moments, but they're always overshadowed by all the darkness around them, kind of. And yeah, it pulls a lot of known history and kind of mixes it in its own fantastical way that just grounds it all, really. Gives it all this kind of immediacy. Yeah. That's Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Yes. Soon to be a live action adaptation also on Netflix. Knock on wood. Yes. Yeah, hopefully it's good. Neil Gaiman's hard to adapt. Mm. But yeah, there is a little bit of everything in this show. Like even all the sociopolitical stuff going on. One of the things I like to think about is, especially with like the Isaac and Hector stuff, this show is like a much better version of the last few seasons of Game of Thrones. Okay. Because like, did you watch Game of Thrones? Not familiar. I actually never watched it. It is very, it feels a lot like Game of Thrones. So it's a war. In scale. It's a trading armies kind of story. Yeah. It feels like Game of Thrones to me personally in scale and also in how it introduces and then um, progresses their characters. Yeah. It wasn't just the scale of it, but it was also, because the best parts of Game of Thrones for me, just to keep milking this comparison, (laughs) in the first half of the show are all the little subtle character moments that no one else was really doing in the fantasy context i think Mm. at the time or at least to the success that it had because game Mm. of thrones was like a household name but castlevania has so many like you guys said incredible quiet moments and when the animation and the action kicks in it goes all the way Mm -hmm. and it's incredible but most of the show was talking and it was very introspective Mm. yeah and yeah Uh, philosophical and that's what really drew me in and not only the fact that it made those honestly risky decisions for a netflix animated series but also that it executed it so well like the writing which i guess was almost entirely warren ellis's 
wow. contribution mm-hmm. was incredible. Mm-hmm. The chemistry of the characters, both in the dialogue and the action, was perfect, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And there was never a boring moment, which blew me away. Gabe, you said your favorite character was Isaac. Yeah. Did you like that conversation that he has with the like... Flies eyes? The, yeah. That was Dude, one of my favorite moments. That's a really rare. cool, subtle yeah. moment where it's sort of this like purpose conversation, right? Because I, I think it's the cornerstone of Isaac's character, or at least mm, his character arc. He's continually trying to find his purpose, sort of. Yeah, but also I think, so Isaac has a conversation in season three with one of his night creatures, uh, coincidentally, <laughs> the only one who could speak. And the idea with the night creatures is, is, like Steven said, it's a demon from hell that was put into the corpse of a human, but they can remember in a dream kind of way their past lives. So Isaac has a conversation with Fly's Eyes, which is what he calls this demon, or at least- He looks like a fly, sorry. Yeah. It's a fly. It's like a giant fly. It's Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah it's Cronenberg's. Yeah, the fly. <laughs> and he's talking to this creature, like, and I think that's where Isaac starts to realize that the future is not with just death and destruction. Because Fly's Eyes tells Isaac, like, I relish in death and the misery. And that's where I think, in a way, Isaac starts to regain a little bit of his humanity, which yeah. he completely abandoned up to this point because of his own traumatic history. That's, I think, for me in my head, where he moves forward and going into season four, he decides that he can not only destroy, but he can build something. Yeah. Whether it's for humankind or... Like, it could still be evil. Yeah, it could still be... He could still make some really evil shit. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting that creation is essentially what he comes back to. Yeah, he, because of his deep sense of justice... And anger. Yeah, and (laughs) anger. But he ventures out on this hell-bent conquest to bring justice to the wrongdoings that have been, honestly, done to him throughout his life, but also how he saw what was done wrong in Dracula's court. And then at one point he decides, wow, I can create something here. And he kind of mumbles to himself and says, I wonder what I'm going to do next. Because he's realized that he can actually do something beyond the simple revenge line that he was headed down. But because he's never actually done it before, it's kind of unbeknownst to him what he can actually do, what he's capable of. And so he mumbles those words. And I thought that was actual genius writing, storytelling. Mm -hmm. I've never seen in any movie, any cartoon, any television work anything pull off a line like that where the character's like sort of just talking out loud pontificating but in a philosophical way and mumble yeah i could do this and potentially maybe this and he's like but honestly i'm just happy to be here right now he's like i I wonder what i'm gonna do next and (laughs) but it just worked and i've never seen a line like that read where it didn't come off as cheesy well and you're also watching isaac sort of do the reverse well, it's a hero's quest story line, yeah. but it's kind of a reverse in a way because totally. he goes from being pure evil yeah. with Dracula, doing yeah. the worst possible things you could imagine, to maybe being more like chaotic good in the end. He ultimately is still going to do probably horrendous things to people and creatures, but he has some kind of light at the end of the tunnel that he's aiming at as opposed to just dismantling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. To even just talk about the writing of the show, I was constantly blown away by the ideas that were being brought up, the way that the characters were speaking. Each of them had a very unique voice, not just in the voice actors that were bringing them to life, but in how they were written. And then also the conflict between the characters and how those were written in dialogue, in speech, and also in the actual written words that all I think came from Warren Ellis, right? I think he wrote everything. Yeah, he wrote everything. Which I've never seen writing like that. I I mean, I have, but only 
clean the best, most elite stuff that I love the most, you know? I haven't read Sandman, but that feeling of grandeur and that this world is so large and... His vignettes appear to be like the Sandman vignettes. Yeah. The way, he must be a Gaiman fan. Gaiman? Yeah, Gaiman I never Gaiman, noticed that. I don't know. He must be a fan because the way that he has someone sit down and have a philosophical conversation and then there's like a world destruction yeah. moment and then... Then Galactus uh, comes and eats the world. Yeah, but it's always married with like a very human grounded moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what we are seeing here. It's constantly that collision of human and grounded mixed with you know cataclysmic world ending yeah. events that make this story so epic and it just you know as a master class in story writing character writing speaking of human and grounding the relationship between lenore we, we haven't even really talked about no not lenore god steven get your sorry, head out of the sorry, gutter full of blood and we're not even <laughs> we're not even really talking yet about like the main three characters trevor sypha and uh Alucard. but their relationship specifically trevor and sypha i thought for me it was very exciting and refreshing that's like the re- part of the story that usually bogs me down whenever i watch something is like mm-hmm. that love angle but something about trevor and sypha adventuring together and having this sort of partnership yeah it was this back and forth partnership and all this banter but there was also this strong affection and bond that they shared yeah it was incredibly like engaging. A respect yeah and other. it's not it's romance does not lie in cheap tricks their relationship seems real because it's it seems real. <laughs> it's not sappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that didn't make sense what I just said, but to Gabe's point, they're relating more on immediate triage situations than they are on like a wedding plan or, a, you know, anything <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. pedestrian like yeah. that. A nice dinner out. <laughs> yeah, because they're dealing with bigger things. And then throwing Alucard into the mix, even though they spend a lot of time apart in the second half of the show, there's such a, a warmth to these characters yeah. interacting with each other but it's fun and it's like I said it's never boring to watch the team up is always so sick yeah you're just like yes it's happening again yeah it's true <laughs> it's super cool yeah when they <laughs> get together at the end of the show and even in the end of season two mm-hmm. it's it's incredible Gig, can you talk about Saint Germain a little Saint bit, Germain. and also yeah. a little bit of the genre hopping yeah. and the Lovecraftian part that we just did not expect? I yes. remember texting you because I jumped ahead of you when we were watching the show because I was You're such a dick. Because I don't have a family that I have to support, yeah. <laughs> so I can spend all my time binge watching Netflix. But I remember vividly season three, episode six, when Saint Germain gets into the Infinite Corridor stuff, which is a huge subplot in season three and becomes a crucial plot point for the whole shebang in season four towards the end yeah which incorporates like you said death and all that stuff but that's when the show for me went from just being an incredible production to being something extraordinary and very special i totally agree and a lot of that was pulled from you may have heard if you're listening to this podcast frequently i'm a big lovecraft fan hp hp yeah lovecraft Lovecraft. packard (laughs) 
But there was a huge amount of Lovecraft homage in season three and then the carryover from that into season four. Not in just the tone and the atmosphere that it created, but literal story beats pulled from Lovecraft stories like Color Out of Space, mm-hmm. Shadow Over Innsmouth, all this stuff uh, with the Priory and the Night Creature that sort of enabled them to open up the Infinite Corridor. Who's basically Cthulhu, right? I mean, yeah, looks yeah, like. Yeah. The creature that they hung up there was some kind of eldritch monster. Yeah. That might as well have Squid. been a Cthulhu spawn. Totally. But the Infinite Corridor is like this genre-breaking passageway. Can we just have a whole Infinite Corridor show? Yeah, I'd love to. That's why I'm kind of like bummed that it made sense they had to kill San Germain. It made perfect sense. But that whole... They have to revisit it. It's so cool. Yeah. What it gives to the show is basically a limitless carte blanche for storytelling. You can do anything. It's almost like I think where the new Loki show is probably going to go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was also cool on a meta level because some of the worlds they showed through the Infinite Corridor like cutaways were actual like Castlevania levels, the Hidden Forest and the City Street. I can't remember what they were all called, but then you have some weird wild stuff. Like in one scene, there was a mech walking across a field, like an actual astromech, like a Gundam. I missed that. There was a scene with some kind of giant astromech, but they show in the infinite corridor the hub of which was like this giant gravity bending space that was like a library and that's sort of where the crux of San Germain's storyline moved from mm-hmm. but yeah I was in awe that this show which already had an incredible identity incorporated uh-huh. all this Lovecraft infinite corridor stuff into the storyline and then had the balls to basically double down and end the story using that <laughs> plot thread because I'm not super familiar with the Castlevania games but I've never heard of this infinite corridor stuff I don't think it's in there really I mean I'm not totally familiar with them either honestly mostly just in what I've heard on YouTube or whatever. I'm a fan of the games and the lore, but I'm not, you know, I haven't played all the games. But yeah, I don't think there's a lot of Lovecraft per se. I will say, though, that the original game was basically Nintendo trying to kind of I think I think it was Mario. They're basically trying to have another platformer with a different genre. Like, Mm -hmm. let's go in a different direction. Let's do a horror genre platformer. And they were just going to round up all the famous Hollywood monsters yeah. Put them in the game. And that's the sort of meat and potatoes basic starting point of this whole story. So it's interesting that it has gone to this really deep philosophical place because it started as like a lot of stuff as just kind of a marketing ploy or like a, mm-hmm. a one trick pony. And, you know, now, of course, it's gotten so deep. And mm-hmm. yeah, to your point, what a risk on their part that totally paid off. But what a risk to throw in this whole cosmic part of the show that yeah. could have been very distracting or off-putting ends up being maybe the coolest thing in the whole show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the character of San Germain to kind of incorporate all that was really fun and very gray. Yeah. It was awesome to have a character that was very morally ambiguous. Yeah. And then when he's brought back in season four and he has this kind of dark bend where he's being used as a pawn and in a larger plan to, well, create a rebus (laughs) by death to... Gabe, what's a rebus? <laughs> a rebus. It's a hermaphroditic entity. San Germain unveils himself as this master magician alchemist, the ultimate end goal of which is to create a rebus, which is a perfect entity that is like a hermaphrodite, utilizing both man and female. Which death wants to use to kill everyone in the world. Yeah. Well, specifically, the rebus controls the infinite corridor, and death's plan is to use the rebus to use San Germain to create the Rebus because Death can't do it himself because only humans can use magic, something like that. He wants the Rebus to bring Dracula back out of hell so then Dracula can basically finish his original plan and 
create hell on earth, which will give death infinite sustenance as he is like a primordial entity. He needs the food. So I have a quick take on that. So in the games, death is often the villain. Mm -hmm. He often shows up as the final boss. You have to fight him after Dracula. And a lot of times his plans are kind of one dimensional like that. (laughs) So I kind of wonder if that sort of end goal of death to use the rebus to control the endless corridor i don't know if it was actually mechanically going to work as much as it was this kind of yeah death he needs to have this kind of one dimensional goal and let's just kill everyone right yeah well and i don't mind that at all too because dracula was such a sympathetic villain yes, yes. and death is not <laughs> it works he's a parasite yeah. yeah yeah he's just pure bad and they explain in the show that he's a ancient being right that yeah he's like a primordial force he's like an I elemental loved, i thought that was so cool i've never heard that spin on death before yeah. He's basically the ultimate vampire. He doesn't just feed on blood. Yeah. He feeds on death itself. It was both literal and metaphorical. <laughs> and it's sort of the human race that has given him the name death, mm-hmm. right? So he's just this creature. He's been doing this thing. And he says at one point, I was put here at the beginning of time to feed on those that live. So he knows what he's doing in his life and his time. But here on Earth, we're kind of like, oh, you know, it's death. It's faceless. It's the Grim Reaper. I love that. I thought that was such a good spin. And it's really funny seeing that unfold in the animated series because he's such like a cocky, cockney bastard. And the way he speaks to these characters is not how you would traditionally imagine an entity called death to speak. He's just cussing and yeah. and everything's kind of just like yeah, and a little he, silly. When he finally revealed himself as the Grim Reaper and he still had the same voice, mm-hmm. I was surprised by <laughs> that. Yeah, I, was still- I like that choice because I think the obvious choice would be to go to a elevated or graduated vocabulary where, you know, this creature's millions of years old, maybe, and he's transcended. He uses big million dollar words and he's a super, you know, smart, whatever. But I think it's actually more interesting that there's a humanity to him and he is selfish, probably. Yeah. And has one-dimensional motives that's kind of cool he's death personified yeah he's not just like an elemental force sure and then it was cool to watch trevor and co square off against him and you get this whole incredibly epic final fight scene where (laughs) trevor as a human being is able to defeat death (laughs) so maybe we could talk a little bit about the ending of this that's a good topic a bit of a segue into how this show ended because it was basically incredible all the way through it had a few slower moments i wasn't like a massive fan of alucard stuff in season three yeah but all the way through this was such a quality show but they made a very interesting decision too with the way to end this in which basically everyone survives and lives happily ever after a totally happy ending which is kind of wild yeah yeah and and even uh, Saif at one point says, "I think we won," or "This is a <laughs> I think this is a happy ending." I can't remember exactly what she says. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. What was the word that you used? I didn't mean it in such a derogatory sense, but I texted the word saccharine to yeah. you, and yeah. so that would sugary be, sweet kind yeah. of ending. Yeah, because and, uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. I was really enjoying the ending until Trevor rolled up on the horse. I agree. I, I, I must like, say it gave it weight. Yeah, right? and mm-hmm. and Trevor showing up. I like the idea of Trevor living. I enjoy that He's idea. Cool. I like the idea of you living as well. Thank you. Yeah. I me too. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that he died for a cause for Alucard to get what he had always wanted, which was to not be alone 
And now he's building this town and he's inviting Saifa to live with him. Saifa, I think she was looking for, I would call it purpose, but not in the sense that she was purposeless. She, she was looking for a home. I she think. also was uh, part of the Sears like goal. It's actually funny. This is kind of a running theme in the Castlevania lore, but her group is basically out to spite God. Right. And that's actually Dracula's motive, too. He's yeah. trying to outsmart God or sort of do things that are flies in the face of sort of thing. So I think that was kind of part of her thing, right, was to overcome evil without the help of the people's God. Yeah, I would say, I mean, thinking about it more, she always was wanting adventure, mm. but I think it's because she ultimately wanted a home. Like if I could summarize it and sure. reductionist it to a, like a one word, it would be that. Like I sure. think Alucard did not want to be alone mm. and Sypha wanted a home and I haven't thought about Trevor's, but Alucard's is just like super blatant. I like the whole thing. Everything in season three was just like lonely him wanting to not be alone yeah i feel like for belmont for trevor it's the weight of his family's curse i guess or his lineage is committed to taking down this ultimate villain and i get the feeling that trevor in the beginning he sort of had a chrysalis through the show and became the warrior that he always kind of maybe yeah. wanted to be yes, or yes, maybe, maybe maybe even was at one point but lost his way yeah so maybe his was like worth like he was, he was yeah, looking for fulfillment and for worth. someone to, yeah, to, sure. call, to call him worthy which is probably why he was okay with making the end sacrifice play, you know? Yeah. But anyway, everyone got what they wanted, but Trevor was absent, you know, for that moment mm -hmm. while Alucard was building the town and he was inviting Sypha and her pregnant self to stay with them. And then like Trevor rolls up and he's like, I'm still here too. And, and Alucard like smiles and they start to like jest with one another. They make and, out a little. Yeah. yeah. They like fell right back into their back and forth. And Saifa's like, they fell back into there as well. Like, oh, I'm going to kill you for being alive. And he's like, don't. He's like, but I would like to take a really long nap or something. It just felt super saccharine, like you yeah. said. Really, really, really sweet. And Gabe, your point was, well, it's fantasy. This whole thing is fantasy. So yeah, it came around on it. And I found myself a few times in the show, especially when Trevor's fighting death. I was like, come on, could you jump from rock to rock? I'm like, what am I, why am I trying to rationalize <laughs> yeah. a cartoon about Dracula? Like, stop. I think because the show grounds the, so, the whole time, yeah. it fed us that. Yeah. It fed us the reality. You're right. And the sort of self-deprecating humanity of the show. And this is real. What these characters are going through are real feelings mm -hmm. that we all have. And then for them to do all this fantastical stuff, it just, it's like, wait a second, you can't still be alive. Like a character has to die because that's what Game of Thrones trained us to do. The thing too is like Dexter, everything else. Sure. Sure. Sife is already pregnant. The yeah. Belmont line continues. Yeah. I just don't, I'm not quite sure why they left that open-endedness. Even if they had just left him gone mm -hmm. and then they started a new project and he returns, I think even that might've felt a little less slimy. Sure, yeah. Maybe a little cheap, but like, I'm not sure why Trevor needed to come back in the end. It didn't. It was an unnecessary character choice. I do think something could be said though about this show always doing the surprising sure. and it always does the thing that I didn't see is, death coming at all. It's always doing the thing that the audience doesn't expect, especially playing into what the swing of our culture has been doing lately with stories like this. Mm. And so for them to be like, yeah, Trevor's still alive and everything's good. Yeah. Like, vampires like are it's, deep. And, it's sort of, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of, it's not a cliche anymore. Mm -hmm. At one point that fairy tale ending 
mm. might have been super cliche, but in a show like hey. this, you would expect someone to die. So for everyone to continue to live and be happy, no, you're right, is what you wouldn't expect. Sure. And so I thought maybe they were just trying double to do back. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's literally like a hey, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, you gotcha again. again. Yeah. To be fair, I think, and this isn't really addressed in the show at all, but I think the Belmont lineage actually has. A little bit of a magical quality to it. Well, they have the prophecy. So there's two prophecies that Dracula will return every hundred years and that the Belmonts will be there to stop him. That is definitely a part of the story. But yeah, it might also be a magical thing. Yeah, I mean, just to like help people digest the pill of how Trevor Belmont, a person, killed death Mm -hmm. in the last part of the show. But yeah, like I said, I sort of come around on it. Initially, it was a bit of a shock to see. I mean, even after that, you see Dracula pop back out and he's living happily ever after with his previously dead wife, Lisa. Great name. Yeah. You're telling me about Lisa. <laughs> Lisa Tepe. But I, I don't mind it so much anymore. Oh, hi, Dracula. <laughs> I did not suck a blood. Yeah, we could go on and on, man. Oh, jeez. But I honestly don't hate it at this point. I'm just, I'm happy. That part of me that wants other people to be happy is happy. Sure. The and other- I'm not mad about it. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of other things to be mad about. The ending is fine. Especially considering that it is the definitive end to these characters' story, except for maybe Dracula and Alec. And that must be why they did it. Yeah. They needed that sun setting on the hillside with them. Mm-hmm. We just need that story to feel okay. A couple things I want to touch on really quick yes. before we end this episode. The art style, the OVA look, and then the music. Yeah. Because music was bomb. Was, was bomb. Trevor Morris was the composer. Trevor Morris was the composer. A lot of Trevors in this podcast yeah. right now. Yeah. I know. Myself, one. You yeah. never have enough Trevor. The Trevor protagonist. <laughs> yep. He's another one. This composer guy, supposedly. Yeah. He was amazing. I remarked to Steven as we were watching it that it had like, uh, even the score itself was kind of blending so many different influences. There were even parts of it that were incorporating synth. It made me immediately think of Vangelis because it sounded like Blade Runner. I'm so glad you said that. I totally was thinking Vangelis too. I swear I heard, I think the theme was like Dreams of Green. Okay. Uh, It was part of the Vangelis score and it was coming in like that. Multiple points throughout the show. Blade Runner's his favorite movie. Yeah, it's it's everybody's favorite movie. Come on. (laughs) But it was just here's awesome. the rain, Stephen. From the intro <laughs> to the little themes and motifs they had carry throughout the show. There was one with bells or chimes or something that was very soft. When Hector and Lenore had their moments, there was this little Stephen. Yeah, when Steve when Stephen and Lenore in the corner of the room watching Lenore, Lenore, Hector, let me know when it's over, dude. Yeah, there were these motifs that I was just like, this is a really good score. This is a really good motif right now. Elite yeah. motif. It was a soft score, I would say. Yeah, a lot of it was. That's what's so interesting. Like, they could have gone on the nose. They could have done heavy metal. They could have done even, like, retro 80s. Like, you mentioned Vangelis, but not, like, in your face. Not Stranger Things. Yeah. No offense, Stranger Things. But no, (laughs) they elevated it by sort of just being really tasteful Mm -hmm. and not being afraid to step outside of genres, too, I think, is kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, I do wish there was a little bit more maybe in the fights of the original scores for the games. Mm. I think you said it popped on once or twice. 
during there's the one ending. in season one i know there's this like final fight scene i think and they just go right into the theme and you're like oh this is the moment right at the end of season two when trevor like it's in the castle goes all aggro yeah it's yeah. in the castle the theme for the show plays over him and it kind of gives it it makes it seem like it's trevor's theme uh-huh it's super cool yeah i was like this is such an awesome moment it, it like, is that really cool moment I think because there was just a couple, it made it feel special. Oh, man. So good. Talking about the art style, Mm -hmm. because there are moments in the show that like felt like two drawings hardly moving through a background that's kind of going behind them. And then there are other moments that felt like everything was super drawn and artistic, like super detailed. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of talked about that a little bit, how there are different teams. Yeah, I have a friend. His name's Eric Fountain. Eric, what's up? He works in animation. He's worked on a bunch of stuff. He worked on Adventure Time, and I'm going to forget all the projects because I can't remember. There's been a lot, yeah. but he's worked at Disney and I think Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. So he's he's been in the industry. He has told me that in the process, they usually have different teams that have kind of different gradings. Mm-hmm. And so they'll save kind of this like they'll have, you know, like an A and a B and a C tier team that will do different parts of the project. So maybe if it's just a dialogue scene, the C team gets it. But if it's that really, you know, it's the final bout with death, that's a team and you can see it when things start to get all zoomed in or all at one point you mentioned how it gets kind of sketchy or something yeah Yeah, that's very labor intensive animation to do that kind of stuff but it's super classic anime too. yeah and i was gonna say anime tends to kind of cluster its animation in that way too in anime it does tend to be dialogue with not a lot of movement and then you cluster all the really labor intense kind of stuff with the action sequences And that is where kind of the Western version of animation criticizes the Eastern version. Mm. In the West, it's based on vaudeville. It's based on like Mickey Mouse dancing and moving and shaking and stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the East, I think it has more to do with like Kabuki theater. Mm. So it's more about like punchy moments and hitting you with something and just a little kind of shimmer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this Castlevania as a whole, is it considered an anime or is it just a cartoon? I don't Do know. You guys know. If you're speaking with a purist, yeah. I mean like weebs, you know. Yeah. Then, they'll they'll tell you that anime by definition is specifically animation from Japan. Japan. Totally. I was gonna say because yeah. okay. But who cares about them? It's totally an anime. <laughs> yeah, this is it, this is an anime. In the in anime style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and maybe it's not the purest, but it's carrying the torch. And like yeah. we didn't talk about the day armor scene, but that scene alone is like the most homage I've ever seen to Berserk. Yeah. Right. There's a famous anime called yeah, Berserk. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, that was totally, you know, ripped right out of that show. Sure. So I would say if anything, they love it and they're thinking about it and trying to do their best to capture that. You know? Yeah, I think a lot of their staff too, Powerhouse, probably Frederator as well, had people that had worked in the Japanese mm-hmm. anime industry and used their knowledge and their skills to move into Castlevania. So it wasn't just homage, it was literal talent that had been working with that. I don't know specifically about Berserk, but Berserk was definitely a huge influence. Yeah, and I would say too, like, and this might be a little more controversial, but anime kind of gets stale at times. Uh, the formula gets really set. You know, you'll get a Naruto, but then you'll get a One Piece and you'll get a mm-hmm. My Hero Academia. And they'll just start lining up all these properties that are all kind of the same wizard school. It's Harry Potter all over again. Just we change the subject each time. <laughs> In 600 episodes. <laughs> yeah. And it's 600 episodes long. And you really ask yourself, what did I get out of that? I don't really even know. And I think that's where Castlevania actually brings it back to kind of these little capsule stories that have 
have a beginning, right. a middle, and an end, yeah. and it takes you somewhere, and uh, you just want more at the end of it. Sure. Yeah. There's less on the plate, and so you're more hungry for it, as yeah. opposed to just like filler episodes, you know? Hope to see more of it. We do. Can we just get this, but like Zelda? Yeah. <laughs> God, like how perfect is that? Yeah, I mean, did you know that Netflix was in development for oh, Zelda no show with Nintendo, and then somebody leaked it, uh, and Nintendo pulled out. No! And they lost it immediately. Damn it, that it. literally was an actual thing that happened. Wow. And IGN reported on that, I think, last year, that the thing that had happened four years previous, which was the leak for there being a Zelda show, was what happened was Nintendo pulled out, and then they weren't able to do Zelda anymore. Oh, I just think it would be so but good. Castlevania is a really amazing piece of work you're a piece of work <laughs> sorry it was too easy got him i was gonna say it's a really amazing work yeah piece of art didn't you say it was like one of your favorite animated things you've ever seen or yeah i mean i've seen less than 10 anime i usually opt to like the classics and then i i don't need to like get into a lot of the more obscure stuff but as far as american animation goes castlevania might be my favorite thing i've ever seen is it the only one? I feel like, what well, else is there? I mean, not including like... Avatar. Daytime cartoons. Okay, you know? that's true. And Avatar, I guess, it's basically an American anime. anime, even though it was animated by Korean studios, Mir and another one. But I think for how short and sweet Castlevania was, and the level of quality it maintained all the way through, whereas Korra has highs and lows, and even the classic original Airbender has moments where it's a little slow. I think we're living in a day and age where limited series are king. Yeah. For any platform and yeah. for any style and medium. Yeah. yeah. And so for Castlevania to come out and say, and the studios and the producers and say, we're going to do a tight four seasons. We're going to come here and execute and we're going to leave. And it's great. We, yeah. It's like, let's yeah. get another gourmet dish right after that one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it leaves me with such a good, we just taste got barbecue. Let's get sushi. Yeah. I think all of media has been realizing that lately. Yeah. More is just more, but at least for something being memorable, I think Castlevania for me personally will stick out. You know, yeah. years from now, I'll be like, yeah. Totally. Oh, it's it's the show that I always wanted. Mm-hmm. I, that sounds so cheesy, but literally my like kid self. This is if I could ask that kid self. My friend and I used to sneak animes, right? Because animes were adult when yeah. we were kids. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing Bubblegum Crisis or something. Yeah. And there's like nudity in it. And we would get so sketched out when the nudity came on and his mom maybe is going to walk in or something. Right. And But at that time, it was just like, can we just get like... One of my favorite video games made into an anime with just some sick animation. And this is it. And it's yeah. it's crazy deep too somehow. Yeah. Mind blowing. Yeah. We haven't even really talked about the fact that video game adaptations don't have a good track record. Oh. And this one like <laughs> doesn't even seem to acknowledge that. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, that's fine. We're not even worried about that. We're just doing our thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just going to be good. Totally. <laughs> and then it was. Yeah. It were. Could you imagine like a Donkey Kong show like this? <laughs> no. Well, I like what you... I can't. <laughs> you, well, Trevor saying Zelda made me think that'd be pretty perfect. Zelda oh, could do it. It'd be insane. Yeah. It, for could. something like this specifically, with yeah. like this studio. You could do four seasons. Well, they... You could do Majora's Mask one season. You could do Link Between Worlds, Link to the Past. Anyway, Trevor Belmont. Steven. Yeah. Thanks for being here today. It's, Gerard, it's I mean, nothing. it's nothing. It's, it's something. nothing. It means something to no. me. It means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was my pleasure. I could nerd out with you guys anytime. We want to have you back on. I was already telling you about that earlier. So yeah, that would be cool for show. Sure. 
this for Vlad fucking Tepesh? San Germain. San Germain. Like I said, I watched this show with my wife, and she validated his story because it was all for love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he murdered countless people for love. Well, in the end, he made it seem like it was all for sex. Do you remember him saying that? Yeah, it's primal, it was, man. Yeah, yeah. Man's got needs. He was the only one that didn't get the happy ending, I guess. He's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, such a good joke in there. I, I couldn't pull it together yeah. quick enough, but there was a... Guess he didn't get the happy ending he wanted. <laughs> I was at the end of a very long massage. Really quick, before you go... Before you turn this podcast off... Two quick things. I feel like an ass for not having mentioned the director of the series, Sam Dietz. Sam Dietz. Who did a fantastic job. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, for your hard work. We love you. And I hope, honestly, that he is working with the series going forward. Because since we recorded this episode, there has been a small announcement about the future of the Castlevania show. I think they announced it like right at the finale that uh, Netflix, they have announced another show in that Castlevania universe they've established. And it will be in revolutionary France, so I guess roughly 300 years after Trevor Belmont and Cypher's story. And it'll pick up with Richter Belmont, a descendant of Trevor, and Maria Renard in revolutionary France. That'll be really cool. And that's the announcement. That's all we have. Is two names and a time period. Can we still expect Warren Ellis not to be involved? Did it say anything about that? Yeah, I think they're they're finished working with him. Ah. For better or for worse. Can he come on as a ghostwriter? Probably. I mean, I... <laughs> Under a different name. Nah, yeah, Stranger Things has happened. <laughs> that was a bad Netflix joke. I'm sorry. Gong gong. <laughs> gong gong. <laughs>